I got to warn you today as we get started that uh, uh, I've been kind of sick all weekend. And uh, so I'm on like triple drugs right now, you know. So I don't know if it's got a sense of humor or whatever. You're talking about sex and drugs. We're going to get you all, you know, drugged up or whatever. But do you ever have one of those like really bad colds and your head's kind of like you, you move your head this way and your head, you're like your brain stays over here? It's kind of like that. So just uh, this kind of anything I say today uh, can't be used against me in a court of law, all right? That's, uh, that's it. But anyway, um, a couple months ago, I came across a, uh, a review of a new book. It was called Sex and the Soul. It was by a lady named Donna Freitas. And uh, basically, uh, Donna, a, she's a teacher, a prof at a, a school uh, back in Vermont. It's called St. Michael's College. And, and she teaches a class on, on sex, on dating. And she's really intrigued by her students' experience in the whole dating world. And she's especially intrigued by, by students um, in the whole what's, what's often called the hookup scene. And, of course, if you're in college, you're familiar with that or whatever. But um, the hookup scene is basically uh, where you just have kind of casual sex with, with people. Uh, no, no relationship, no love, no commitment. You just kind of hook up. It might be a, a, in a dorm room. It could be at a party. Uh, it could be weekend. It could be weeknight. But just there's no relationship involved. It's just, it's just sex. Just hook up for sex. And it's kind of a, a prevalent thing on college campuses. And so she was intrigued by this. And so she decided to do some research on the relationship between sexuality and spirituality. And, and so what she did is she interviewed 111 students um, from six different universities. Two of them were, were Catholic schools, uh, so private schools, Catholic schools. Two of them were secular schools, but private schools. Uh, two of them were uh, private schools, but Christian schools, evangelical, kind of Bible-believing schools. And then on top of that, uh, interviewing these uh, 111 students, she also did an online survey of 2,500 students. And we'll be talking about that later today. But today, um, we're uh, continuing this series that we've been in now for, uh, since February called The Way. And for those of you who are brand new here, I always like to stop just for like 60, 90 seconds, bring you up to speed so you're ready for this. Uh, this is a series on the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. Now, if you're new with this whole Christianity thing, the Apostle Paul was one of the greatest Christian leaders, Christ followers of all time. He wrote 13 of the 27 books in our New Testament. And so what we're doing in this series is we're coming alongside of him and we're asking him to mentor us. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be part of this ancient movement that Jesus started called, um, in the early church, they called The Way? And, um, and every week we do the same thing. We start with his teaching in his longest, most famous letter, his, his letter to the Church of Rome, and then we branch off onto other writings that kind of touch on the same topics he raises that day. So if you've got your Bibles today, we're in chapter 13, and that brings you up to speed. So if you're going to turn to chapter 13, and the topic today is sex and drugs. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 13. We're going to also look a little bit at Ephesians 5 as we walk through chapter 13. And um, we'll walk through this passage, and then we're going to come back and talk about what does it look like to follow Jesus in these two areas of our sexuality in terms of use of substances. All right, so here we go, chapter 13, verse 10. Now, this is where we left off last week. <coughs> love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. Now, if you were here last week, you know we talked about this, that we talked about the law of love, Right? That as Christ followers, there's one rule that rules them all. Uh, it's the law of love. That in every situation, every relationship, the one question we need to ask is, what would love do in this situation? And then we, we do that. And when we've done that, we've done it all. It's our core code of conduct. 
And so now Paul's going to break it down and give us a couple practical examples. And so the topic, you know, is love, but the subtopics today are going to be sex, drugs, partying, and that sort of thing. And what we're going to see is that the, the, the sex is kind of, a, uh, as Christians, sex, drugs, partying, and all, they, they fall under like the law of love. Like what does it look like to love others in relationships and our sexuality and substances and sort of like that? So he says in verse 11, so do this and do this, uh, in other words, practice the law of love, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. And so Paul is going to begin to move into this biblical New Testament metaphor, big picture metaphor that's often used of light and darkness. And so the teaching goes like this, is that before we came to Jesus, that we lived in this world, and this world is covered in darkness. It's spiritually dark. It's in the dark. And then we come to Jesus, we step out of the darkness and into the light. We become children of light. And so as Christ's followers, we need to leave the darkness behind. We need to move into the light. We need to wake up. The night is over. I want you to keep your finger here in Romans chapter 13, and I want you to turn to the right just a few pages to Ephesians chapter 5, where where Paul really teases out this metaphor of of light and darkness. So go to Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 8, he says, for you were once darkness. In other words, this Before you came to Jesus, you know, the church at Ephesus, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. See that metaphor, light and darkness. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Um, If you pay close attention to my teaching, that I'll often use this phrase. I will often say something like, the life that God calls us to, that which is good and right and true. And that really comes from this verse in Ephesians chapter 5. And so he says, and find out, verse 10, what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Fruitless deeds, in other words, that the deeds of our old life of darkness, they bear no fruit in our life. They, they, they bear no good fruit. Uh, but, in, but rather expose them. Verse 12, for it's shameful even to mention what's, what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and for, uh, for it's light that makes everything visible. That's why it says, and they have this little saying going around in their church, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. Okay, so you get the idea. That we used to be in the darkness, children of the dark. We've now come to Jesus. The light is beginning to dawn in our lives. And, of course, the full light of day will happen when Jesus comes back, right? And so, so we're in this transition zone with the dawning of a new day. So let's go back to chapter 13 of Romans now. We'll pick up again. Verse 12. He says, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. In other words, when Jesus comes back. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness, the old life, and put on the armor of light. We're in a spiritual battle, spiritual war. We're the warriors of light. And now he gives us a couple examples of what it means to live like in the light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, what we might think of partying today. Uh, not in dissension and jealousy. So he says, let, let's talk about what it means to live in the darkness. He said it's, it's kind of the wildlife. It's the, the sex, the drugs, the, the drinking, the partying. That's part of the darkness. It's also relationship issues, right? Uh, dissension, jealousy. If you are here last week, you know we talked about the relationship issues last week. So today we're going to be focusing on kind of the wild side thing, the, the sexual immorality 
and uh, the, the uh, substance abuse. Verse 14, rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day, get up, put on Jesus Christ as your clothing. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And underline that, don't even think about it. So this is an important teaching that we're going to be seeing today, is that when it comes to the area of sexual purity or substance abuse, not only are we not to do the things that are obviously, but we're not even to think about it. We're not to be fantasizing about it. We're to have kind of pure minds, so to speak, in these areas. So that's the text. Now in the time we have today, I want to roll up our sleeves and just kind of jump in. And we want to talk about these two very important areas of modern culture that are impressing in us all the time the area of sexual immorality, and the area of substance abuse, kind of big issues in our culture. What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to experience God's will for our lives? Remember, it's good and pleasing and perfect in this area, of, in these areas of our life, okay? So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Sex and Drugs, the Dawn of a New Day. And we've got the two principles there, and let's just jump in. We'll spend a little bit longer on the first one than the second one. But both are important. Okay, the first thing that jumps out from this passage is that sexual immorality is a big deal. Okay? The first thing that, that Paul wants us to understand is that sexual immorality is a big deal. Now, frankly, this is a little hard for us to get our, our hands around because in our culture today, it's so common. You know, this week, uh, the last couple days, I've been sick, and so I've been watching more TV than I normally do or DVDs or whatever. And it's just amazing. I mean, just kind of, really, it's hard to watch any show without just sexual immorality being a part of it. You know, one of the shows I was watching, one of the DVDs, I mean, the couple comes together, their first date, they've kind of liked each other for a while, but they come their first date, and they just realize it, and they go on their first date, and sure enough, it ends up in the bedroom. And that's just kind of the standard uh, operating procedure of our culture, right? Uh, it, it's, it's very much, um, and it's always shown in the best of light, it's always shown made very attractive. I mean, we've, got, we've always got the handsome dude. You've got the, the beautiful woman. You've got uh, the romantic music in the background, just the right mood, the right lighting. You know, of course, we never see the end of the story, right? We never see the broken hearts. We never see them the breakup day. We never see the end of the one-night stand or how many one-night stands or how empty. We don't see the STDs. We don't see the, 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 the unwanted pregnancies. We don't see... Um, the woman standing in line at abortion clinic, we just see day number one, you know? But, and it, and it's, it's, it's uh, kind of really presented in a very appealing light, right? And I think if we're honest, we can admit that, that, that sexual immorality is very appealing, at least at one level, right? Like, we won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> but if yours isn't up, I'd be counting the liars, not the sexual, you know? It's, it's like, this is one of those areas where if you've never been tempted sexually, you just need to take your pulse, Right? It's like this, this, is just part of, this is part of the human condition, the fallen condition. It's part, and, and there is a part. Here's why I want you to catch it. Sexual immorality is very appealing at one level, right? It is. In fact, the Bible teaches this. The Bible, in fact, when it comes to sexual immorality, the Bible's message is not like, oh, shame on you. Don't think about that. It's horrible. How could you even imagine? That's not the message. The message of the Bible is, I understand why you would want to do that, but don't do it. It'll ruin your life. Okay, that's the message of the Bible. And so, like, for example, there in your note sheet, let me give you a couple examples from Proverbs chapter 5. Here's a, a father who's giving counsel to his young adolescent son. He's kind of coming to deal with the sexuality issues in his life. And so he says to his son, he says, the lips of an adulteress, in other words, you know, sexual immorality, kind of she's being personified as a, as a person now. The lips of an adulteress, they drip honey, uh, very sweet. 
uh, her speech is smoother than oil. It's very attractive. But in the end, that's the part you want to underline. In the end, she is as bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead, uh, lead straight to the grave. You, you catch this? So here's what the Bible is saying. It says, hey, son, catch this. Sexual morality is going to be very attractive. It's going to be very winsome. It's going to look like something you really want to do. It's going to look sweet. It's going to look smooth. It's going to look like the way to go. But, son, be very careful because if you go on that path, the end of it is destruction, right? So, in other words, it's as if, as if your life, think of your life as a novel, right? And, and if you write a chapter of sexual immorality, that will be a very exciting chapter, but it will be a very sad novel, you see? Very exciting chapter, but a sad life. In fact, this is the way he puts it later in the passage in Proverbs. He says, uh, at the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. And you will say, how I hated discipline. Like, I just wasn't willing to listen. How my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers. I wouldn't listen to my instructors. I've come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. And so the message of the Bible is not that sexual immorality is not attractive. It's very attractive. The message is it's dangerous. You see, if you pursue it, it can destroy your life. That's the message. Now, so I want you to catch this. The main point that Paul is making is if you want to be a Christ follower, if you want to experience God's plan for your life, if you want to be transformed, if you want to live a life of love, that, that sex outside of marriage is not love. It's selfish and it's destructive. That's the message he wants us to get. I want to stop just for a second. Remember how this whole passage started back in Romans 12? Remember we're in the section created for community, sub-series, Chapter 12 through 16. Remember how it started. Paul said, he said, I urge you, brothers, in light of all God's done for us, you give your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Pink slip of your life. And he said, that, and that you do not be conformed to the teaching of this world, but you be transformed or changed by the renewing of your mind. New perspective on life. He says, then you'll experience God's will for your life, that which is good and perfect and pleasing. Remember that? We talked about the order. Submit your body, pink slip. Uh, let him transform your thinking. Then you experience his will. Well, this is one of those areas that if we decide to follow Jesus, but we don't give him our bodies in this area, we'll never experience the transformation. We'll never experience the new life that he has for us. Now, um, this is one of those areas, this is a burden of mine because I think as Christ followers, this is one of those areas where the world is crashing in on us 24-7, isn't it? It is just constantly hitting us in everything, just like the video. You know, just the, the, you know, the movies, the billboards, the magazine, like everything is, is against us. And if we're not careful, we will do exactly what Paul said not to do, that we will be conformed to this world. You know, I started the day with that study of Donna Freitas. And here's what she found out in her study. Remember, she studied six different universities and 2,500 college students online. Well, here's what she found. In the Catholic schools, when she asked the question, have you been sexually active, you've had, uh, had oral sex, or you had, uh, sexually, you're sleeping around, or you've uh, had sexual intercourse, she found out that 73% of students in the Catholic university said yes. That, that's, our, that's our experience, right? Honestly, that, I thought that was a little low. I was uh, surprised, personally. 
But the percentages went higher as she went along. Um, as she went to the secular private school, that percentage jumped to 79%. As she jumped to the public schools, it jumped to 85%. Right? And, and as she, um, but, and then here's the interesting thing. So you see, them, you see the program in our culture, right? You see that the, that's where our culture is. So the question is, well, how about the Christian schools? Now, these are schools where they're evangelical schools, Bible-believing schools, people where Christian colleges, you know, that they'd be like a Westmont or a Biola or Point Loma or a Wheaton or those kinds of schools where, where the students are supposedly following Christ. They're, you know, and, and the good news was that the percentage was much lower than, than in, the, in the public schools or the, these other private schools. The bad news was it was way higher than you want to see. The percentage came out at 35%. 35% of the students, uh, uh, self-identified Christ followers basically at the school, at least someone in their family wanted them there, right, that, that they were involved uh, sexually. Now, so what I'm saying is that as a movement of Christ's followers, this is an area where the, the world is just crashing in on us all the time. And it's, it's very hard to stand up against it unless we're very intentional about it. So let's talk about how to do that. How do we, how do we stand up against that? I would say that the first thing is, is we need a new paradigm when it comes to sexuality. Uh, we, we need a whole new uh, kind of perspective on it. Uh, for many of us, you're probably raised this way, or if you're kind of new at this whole Christianity thing, oftentimes we assume that because the Bible is so anti-sexual immorality that it's anti-sex. And the reality is it's not. That God is all for sex. He's all pro-sex. He, he created it, right? He invented it. He thought it up. In fact, he's gone to great lengths to design our bodies to respond to this uh, kind of it's called Wonderland, right? You know, some, your body's a Wonderland. Yeah, it's, it, it's really true. It's, it, it, yeah, it's really true. Uh, in fact, I remember, um, this wasn't even in my notes, but I, I was thinking of this last night when I was teaching. I remember back in, uh, yeah, way, way, it was the last century, you know, but um, there, was a, there was that famous sexual report. Some of you remember the Masters and Johnson big report that's done, you study in college and stuff like that, on human sexuality. And the researchers found then that the, 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 in the woman's body, that there are 24 erogenous zones in the woman's body. Stop and think about that. That's a lot of zones, right? That's a lot of zones. Now, now guys only have one zone, it's our eyes. No, just kidding. Uh, um, but, but there's a lot of zones, right? And it's like God has gone to a lot of trouble to design us for sexuality. In fact, there in your note sheet, there's a quote. Um, it's from a, a Christian sex manual. She probably thought it was an oxymoron. But uh, it's, it's, I wouldn't really recommend the book, not because it's bad, but just because it's old. There's better ones. <laughs> it's called Intended for Pleasure. And it's by Dr. Ed and Gay Wheat. They're a Christian couple. He's a, he's a medical doctor. He says, God's plan for our pleasure has never changed. And we realize this even more as we consider how we're fearfully and wonderfully made. When we discover the many intricate details of our bodies, which provide so many intense, wonderful uh, physical sensations for husbands and wives to enjoy together, we can be sure that he's intended us to experience the full satisfaction of the marriage relationship. And so the, the point that they're making is that God's gone to great lengths to design us to be sexual beings. 
Um, you know, there's, the more we, we research in this area, the more we, we, we understand that there are many, many parts of our, our bodies and sensation, these zones or whatever, that have no reproductive uh, function at all. They're just purely designed to create pleasure for the sexual experience. And so, so God is all over sex. I mean, he, he's the one who created it. He made it. He designed it. He, needs it he, he knows how to make it work. And catch this. So when God said, comes to us and says, hey, thou shalt not... Like I often teach here, it's never to restrict us, it's always to protect us. God wants you to experience sexual fulfillment in your life in a committed relationship where you love someone for the rest of your life, what we call marriage. That's what he's designed. And so these rules about sexual relationships are designed to lead to fulfillment, you see, because really the human body is his wonderland. It really is for couples to enjoy this. And so we need to start with a, a new positive view of sexuality. You say, now, well, Mike, are you sure on this? Are you sure he's that big on this? Yes, because he's written a whole book of the Bible on this one topic, on romantic love, sexual love, and marriage, right? And what, what, what's the name of the book? Song of Solomon. Okay, don't sound like you're so bored. Song of Solomon. Like, this is an exciting book. Um, now, if you're a new Christian or you're new at this thing and you've never read this before, you need to go to good modern translation and just read it because you're going to be blown away at how graphic the Bible is. Like, oh, that's the Bible? Yeah, yes, yes. And so I, I feel free to speak on it because the Bible speaks so freely on it. So here we go. Um, like there in your note sheet, here's an example. <coughs> this is from Song of Solomon chapter 7. It's the New Living Translation. And it's this young man speaking to his wife, newly married, and he says, you are tall and slim like a palm tree. And your breasts are like clusters of dates. And I said, I will climb up onto this palm tree, and I'll take hold of the branches. <laughs> now, you got to love this guy, don't you? There's another mother may I here. He's like, this guy's ready to go. He says, now may your breasts be like grape clusters and the scent of your breath like apples. And may your kisses be as exciting as the best wine. Catch that? We're going to be talking about wine later. Okay, just let them part that out. Like the best wine, they've apparently had some good wine before this. And, um, and it's smooth and it's sweet and flowing gently over lips and teeth. I mean, this guy, he's ready to make love. He's excited. He's like, you're amazing. You're like the palm tree, you know, you're, and those breasts are like dates. And I want to climb a tree and woo, you know. And, and you know, it's like, and I just want to kiss you and I want to feel your, your lips and your teeth and, you know. And so you're like, well, what's she going to say? Whoa, not tonight. Not tonight. No, got the whole headache going thing. Not so interested. Back off, buddy. Back off. Beep, beep, beep. Too close. No, no, no. Now, here's what she's going to say. Look at the next passage. Here's what she says in chapter 4. She says, let my lover come into his garden and taste his choice fruits. She's all over this. He's like, come on, I am ready. Now, this is the biblical view of sex. Your body is a wonderland. It's, 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 it's this amazing view where God's created this playground for couples to bond them together. And, uh, and sex is designed to be this amazing experience that bonds a man and a woman who've committed to love one another for the rest of your life. I will be there to your old age. It's going to commit those two people together, and it works really well. 
Sex is an amazing bond. I, I, uh, I often think of sex as a couple analogies come to mind. The first one is super glue. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing bonding. You know, remember the Bible talks about the two will become one flesh, right? Which is much more than just the physical, talking about the emotional, the spiritual, the coming together. It's God's gift to design couples to bond together. Now, I realize that often in a fallen world becomes a war zone. I get that. But that's not how it was designed. It's designed to be this wonderland, this playground for couples where it's fun, it's free, there's no shame, there's pure joy, there's excitement. You see, it's a sharing. It's, and it's designed to bond couples together. Now, catch this. This is why it's so dangerous. Because when you use superglue in the wrong place, have you ever done this? Using superglue, you're not paying attention. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, crud. You know, you're like, you're attached to something permanently, you know. And, and, and to get it off, we've got to rip it off, right? You're going to tear your skin or something. And this is what happens. When we sexually connect with someone, we may want to have casual sex. We may want to just hook up for the night. But have you, I, when you have sex with someone, it changes the relationship. When you have sex with someone, there's a bond there. That relationship is never the same again. There is a bond there that's unlike any other bond. And when you go through life hooking up with this person, hooking up with that person, when you go through life, I'm going to live with this person before I get married. I'm going to, I'm going to have sex outside of marriage that there is a, a bonding and then there's a ripping that happens when you break up in that relationship. And catch this, there is a loss of your soul in the process. Then when we have sex with someone that's not a committed lifetime relationship we call marriage, there is a ripping and a tearing that takes place. There's a loss of ourself in the process. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And this is what the movies don't tell you. This is what the books don't tell you. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and there's a shallowness of soul and you can't put your finger on why or how or what happened. But what's happened is you've given yourself away and little bits and little pieces until the day has come, there's a shallowness there. It's like there's a thinness of soul. And so God is looking out for us. He's loving us. The other analogy I like to think of as sex other than superglue is fire. And you know, fire in the fireplace on a cold winter night, if we ever get one, around here. It's like maybe by January. I'm still waiting for the first fire of the season. Uh, in the fireplace. In the fire. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Clarification. Yes. Maybe that's the problem. We've had too many fires outside the fireplace. But what a great analogy. Cold winter night, nothing better than a roaring fire in the fireplace, right? Let that jump out of the fireplace onto the hillsides or into your house, and it can burn your house down, right? And so, so sexual immorality is like that. It's, a, it's the power to warm us, has the power to destroy us. And so God says, be very careful. Now, this becomes a major theme in the New Testament then. A major theme of the Apostle Paul is that if you're serious about following Jesus, this is one area that's a non-negotiable. You need to leave the darkness behind of sexual morality. So let me, I, I want to demonstrate this to you. I think the only way to do that is to walk you through some passages, okay? Because I could tell you and you just say, well, whatever. Just let me read it to you, okay? So get your Bibles out and let's go to, uh, we're going to do a little study of what I'm calling sin lists, right? Now, you know what a sin list is? Okay, in the New Testament, from time to time, there are virtue lists and there are sin lists. And they're like short, God's shorthand ways of saying, as a Christ follower, here's what you should be doing, here's what you shouldn't be doing. And here's the interesting thing. When you go to the sin list of the New Testament, here's what you find is that almost without exception, number one on the hit parade is what? 
sexual immorality. It's, it's amazing. So we're going to do a little study. Let's go, first of all, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, so we go to the right in our Bibles. <coughs> and he says in verse 5, um, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your old, your old nature, your, you know, your darkness when you're used in the dark. Look what, what comes first in the list. Has anyone found Colossians yet? Very good. Colossians 3, verse 5. Follow along. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. First item on the list is? Second item in the list? Third item in the list. Okay, you get this? You get this? Paul says, hey, hey, you've come to Jesus. Now you need to put aside the old things. Number one, sexual morality. Number two, purity. Number three, lust. Then he goes on. Um, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God's coming. In other words, at the end of time, Jesus is coming back. The wrath of God's coming. You, now catch this. You used to walk in these ways. He said, the, you know, these are Christians at Colossae. That they'd come out of worldly, the Roman world. They, they, they didn't sleep it around. That's their lifestyle. And he said, so you used to walk in these ways. It's the way you used to live. But now you must rid yourselves of these. Get rid of them, okay? Let's go back to the left now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's look at another sin list. First Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll start at verse 9. He says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's interesting. There's a lot of people today who don't know this. <laughs> There's a lot of people say, yeah, I'm wicked, but I went forward when I was 12 years old, Billy Graham crusade. Um, so I think I'm in the kingdom of God, right? And Paul says, do you not know the wicked? Well, well what do you mean by wicked, Paul? Like, what, well, let me give, he says, let me give you 10 examples. <laughs> do not be deceived. So this is an area that's possible to be deceived. I believe there's a lot of people who see themselves as Christians in this country who are totally deceived on this issue. They think that they're following Jesus. They think they're going to go to heaven. They think that they're part of his kingdom. And Paul says, do not be deceived. It's easy to do. So he goes on. He says, neither, he's going to give us 10 things here. Neither the, number one, what's the first one? Sexually immoral. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. So there's another sexual issue. Nor male prostitutes. Interesting. Nor homosexual offenders. Interesting. Now, here's what I want you to catch. Often people will come to, to you today and say, well, I know that's what the Bible says. But that was a long time ago, and things have changed. And here's what you need to tell them. Yes, they have. They've gotten better. You see, we often look at it like this, is that, oh, well, yeah, but, you know, uh, uh, you know we live in such a different society today. Well, you know what? The society that the Apostle Paul lived was much more sexually immoral than our culture. Did you know that? I mean, as bad as we are, it was much worse then. They lived in a culture, for example, where it was very common for older men to have relationships with younger boys. Very common. Uh, they lived in a culture where you'd go to the temple, you'd have male prostitutes. You'd have female prostitutes. It was part of your church service. Right? 
Uh, you know, these sins he's talking about, that's why he says this is what you were. This is where you came out of. This was a sexually charged culture. So when people say, hey, but times have changed, therefore we don't have to follow it, it's like, yeah, they've gotten better. You see? It's, like, it's not like it's not like getting worse. Okay, so he goes on. Uh, so he's given us four examples, and he says, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards. Catch that, drunkards. We'll talk about drinking later. Nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They're not getting in. He says, and catch this, and that is what some of you were. You see that? These people in the church of Corinth, many of them had come out of this background. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. You came to Christ. The night's over. It's a new day. Let's look at one other. But I want you to uh, catch here ten examples of wickedness. You not keep you out of the kingdom. Four of them deal with sexual morality. Okay? Let's uh, go to the, back to, um, which way are we going? Go to the right in your Bible. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Look, one more sin list. And again, all I'm pointing out is that in these sin lists, first item on the list every time is sexual morality. It's almost as if God is saying, hey, if you're serious about following me, here's step number one. You know, leave that behind. <laughs> Verse 19. He's going to give us 15 examples in this sin list. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality. Notice again, first on the list. What's number two? Impurity. What's number three? Debauchery, just like Romans 13, right? Then he goes on, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy. He's going to 15 examples, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, there's drunkenness again, orgies and the like. And I catch this, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not what? Inherit the kingdom of God. You're not part of the next life, you see? Now, are you catching what I'm saying here? When I say that sexual morality is a big deal, this is, not a non, this is not a negotiable with Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, but I want to live immoral lifestyle. He's like, no, that's not an option. You see, he said it multiple times. Now, here's what I want you to catch. It's not just the, the, the purity that God calls us to as Christ's followers. It's not just with our bodies. He also calls us to a purity of mind, a purity of conversation. It's a purity of all of our life. And I want you to see this in, go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we were there earlier today. This is a section where we talked about light and darkness, and you're now children of light, don't be in the darkness. But earlier in that passage, he talked about this whole issue of sexual immorality. So here we go in verse 3. But among you, there must not be even a what? A hint of sexual immorality. You see that? He's, he's saying, not only do you not do it, not only are you not sleeping around, not only you don't live with your, your boyfriend or girlfriend before you're married, not only you know, you're not uh, going out and visiting prostitutes or whatever, not only do you not do these things, he says, but you shouldn't even have a hint of it. Well, what would that look like? What would it be like in our language? It would be like uh, uh, in our jokes. It'd be in our double entendres and our flirting, no suggestive flirting. He says, we should be absolutely pure in this. Remember what he said back in chapter 13 of Romans. He said, uh, don't even think about how to gratify the desire. So don't fantasize about it, right? We want purity all the way through. And he goes on to lay it out more. 
He says, uh, among you must not be a hint of sexual morality any, or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, so our language you know, needs to change. No more F-bombs and that sort of thing. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, right? That's kind of impure kind of joking, the traveling salesman joke or whatever, which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. For, for this you can be sure, catch this again, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Hey, this is no big deal. You see? There's all around us going to be people in our lives going to say, this is no big deal. It's no big deal to live with your boyfriend before you get married. It only makes sense. How else will you know if you marry them? Of course, statistics show that if you live with your boyfriend before you get married, you're more likely to get divorced down the road. You know, let's, let's leave that aside. Hey, it's no big deal. We've been, we're serious in our relationship. We're going to get married someday, right? So it's no big deal. It was just a one-night thing. No big deal. It didn't mean anything to anything. We both understood that. No big deal. And Paul's saying, hey, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. And it's a big deal not just in our bodies with, with our minds. He says, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So, so what are the implications for us as Christ's followers? Well, I think, first of all, hey, if we're serious about living a life of love, we need to kind of grip like, Hey, when we have a sexual relationship with someone outside of marriage, we're not loving them. We're ripping them off, right? That's the first thing. But beyond that, I think it means that as Christ's followers, we really need to guard our minds and our hearts as well. And I think what this means practically for us is that we don't want to put ourselves in situations or watching things or whatever that are creating in us illicit desires for sexuality that we can't fulfill in positive ways, right? So, so what does that look like? We, we shouldn't be putting ourselves in a situation where we're arousing ourselves for something that we can't have. That's what he's saying. So, for example... Uh, guys, for us, I mean, we, we joked about this, but it's so true, it's the eye gate, right? Our big thing is the eye gate, what we see. And that's what tends to arouse us and create sexual hunger for things that are not of the Lord. You know, that's not for our wives, right? So it could be, uh, you know, any kind of, of course, pornography falls in that. It's a big deal. It's, uh, it's something that rots us out spiritually. It rots out our soul. And it destroys our marriages, right, because you stop and think about it, like, there's not a wife in the world that can compare to that, right? There's not a wife in the world, a real person, they compare to the on-screen images on the computer. I mean, it's airbrushed. You know, it's like, it's not even real. You know, and so no one can really compete with that. Uh, for you women, um, I think that this takes in, for some of you, there might be a struggle with pornography. That's an increasing uh, problem in our culture. I saw a statistic the other day that about 25% of younger women now are using pornography. It's on the increase, and so that might be an issue. But for most women, it's not so much the visual eye gate, it's the, the emotional, uh, it's emotional gate. It's the, the fantasy world. It's the, the dream world. Hey, what would life be like if I were married to that guy at my job? It doesn't hurt to imagine, you know? Uh, what would it be like if I were married to that guy in, in, in the church, you know, that it just, I just kind of, I'm just thinking about it. It doesn't hurt to think about it. And what would it be like to go to bed with that guy or to make love to that, that, that man? And there's like this emotional world that can happen. Often this is, is really uh, kind of 
fed by, uh, uh, not so much like visual images, it can be fed by uh, kind of romantic kinds of shows, uh, like uh, soap operas are great at this, kind of feeding this kind of thing. Um, uh, you know, there's, where affairs are happening all the time. Um, another thing that, you know, uh, kind of the romantic, uh, erotic, uh, romantic novels. I mean, there's a reason why, have you, like, have you ever seen a guy reading one of those books? You know what I'm talking about? Those, those books where the heroine, she's lying there like this with her dress half off and cleavage down to her belly button. She's, like, like, she's lying there on the guy on the cover. Like, you never see a man reading those books, right? Because we don't need words, right? <laughs> we need pictures. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? And so there's a reason why we're drawn to different things, why, why women would be drawn to certain things and kind of the more emotional, relational uh, kind of uh, imagery things, what would life be like? This is why, you know, some of you women, it's like you've been on two dates and you're already practicing his last name, right? You know, what would life be like, you know? Um, and, and for guys, it's more visual, but here's the principle. It's that anything that causes us to hunger after sexuality that's off limits or damaging, we need to root that out of our life. That, that's the principle. And so whatever does that for you, you see? All right. Let's go on. Number two. So the first thing he says is that, that, that sex is a great thing, but it's incredibly damaging, and so it's, sexual immorality is a big deal. But there's a second principle, and it's about substance abuse. And, and this will be kind of fun. This might challenge some of your notions, but I just want to remind you that my job is to teach the Word. <laughs> so we're going to do that, all right? Here we go. So substance abuse is a serious problem. According to the New Testament, substance abuse is a serious problem. And, of course, we saw this in Romans 13, 13. Let's take another look at it. Romans 13, 13. waiting for the pages. 13, 13. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness. Okay? And so, and I pointed this out multiple times as we went through the sin list. Drunkenness shows up, right? And of course, when we talk about drunkenness, we need to expand this out. We're not talking about just the abuse of alcohol. It could be abuse of other drugs, right? It could be prescription drugs that are abused. Um, it could be uh, illegal drugs. It could be pot could be uh, uh, Coke, could be crystal meth, whatever the, the drug of choice is. But, but what Paul is saying is that part of leaving the darkness behind is leaving behind uh, this lifestyle of, of uh, substance abuse. That if we're serious about following Jesus, we've got to leave that behind, that we're not to be under the control of that. Now, I think we need to start here um, with some teaching on, on alcohol in the Bible. Because I think that um, for many years, at least in my lifetime, there's been a lot of like, um, inaccurate teaching, bad teaching on this topic. And so I'm sure that, for, for example, many of you have heard it taught that as Christians that we should not drink or that Christians shouldn't drink. Have, have any of you ever heard that kind of teaching? I just want to see a show of hands on this. Okay, okay so quite a bit. I think it's less prevalent today, but, but especially when I was growing up, there's often taught that Christians shouldn't drink. That if you really want to please God, the best way to please God is to, to, not, to not drink. And... Um, and I'm not really sure where this teaching comes from. It's certainly not from the Bible. I, I know that. Because what you find is in the Bible, is the Bible, is, if anything, is kind of pro-alcohol. 
not anti-alcohol. And, and this might surprise you. In fact, this might be the last sermon I ever deliver. Um, but I want to go out strong. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is you, like, that's, that's my job is to teach the Word, right? That's, what, that's why, why you brought me here, teach the Word. And so that's what I'm going to do. Um, and it's, it's kind of surprising, really, because when you, when you read through the Bible, the Bible is very pro-alcohol, at least pro-wine for sure. For example, um, I was reading in the Old Testament uh, a few weeks ago, just in my personal devotions, and I was in Isaiah chapter 20, uh, 25. It's a passage about the second coming of Jesus and what, what the life's going to be like when he comes back. And there in your note sheet, I put an example. And this is like one example. It could be hundreds of examples from the Old Testament. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food. And this mountain's talking about Jerusalem when he comes back. The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of what? Aged wine. Now, the best wine is aged, right? So he's saying fine wine. If, if there's any doubt, look what he says next. The best of meats and the what? The finest of wines. And it's really odd to me when the Bible is full of verses like this, how we could teach somehow that, that Christians should never have alcohol. It just seems really odd to me. Um, and I think it's really damaging to the movement of Jesus because what it does is it makes what is a minor a major. And, and so all of a sudden, as Christians, we're known not for what we're for, like the law of love. We're known for like, well, Christians don't drink or dance or, you know, it's like, really? That's the image of what Jesus came to? He came to rescue the world so we wouldn't drink or dance. Wow. Pretty <laughs> impressive. You know, big, big job he had, you see? And so what you find as you go in the Bible is the Bible is very pro-wine. In fact, uh, some of you remember the story, but when Jesus' first miracle he ever did was at a little town named Cana in Galilee. In, the, in his time, weddings were a big deal. They would often last for many days, uh, even a week. And so when you'd have a, uh, this, this, this thing, it was, a, it was a huge social function. And so he's at this little wedding, and the couple runs out of wine. And this is like a tragedy. This is like a social nightmare for them. And so the mother, his, Jesus' mother, comes to him and says, you need to do something. And so there's six pots there that the Bible says hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. He says, fill them up. So we've now got between 120 gallons and 150, 180 gallons of water. He turns them into wine. Are you with me on this? We're talking 150 gallons of wine. Like, I didn't even know you can buy wine in gallons. You know, it's like, like who buys wine? I like 10 gallons of wine. How many bottles would that be? Well, I don't know, just 10 gallons. I've got a big party going on. It's like, are you with me in this? 150 gallons of wine. And here's the best part. He made really good wine. <laughs> Do you remember the story? Is when the MC. He goes and he tastes the wine. He comes to the bridegroom and he says, man, this is, this is so weird. Because typically what happens at a wedding is the bridegroom, you serve the best wine first. And after everyone's had too much wine to drink and they're drunk and they can't tell the difference, you bring out the Boone's Farm. <laughs> you, you bring out the two-buck chuck, Right? He says, but this is really weird because you've, you've saved the best wine for last. You see what's going on here? And so someone says, oh, well, it wasn't real wine back then. It was like grape juice. Yeah, well, then why is everyone getting drunk? Right? 
You don't you bring out like, oh, this grape juice is amazing. That wine was not so, this grape juice. You know, it's like, this clearly he's making wine 150 gallons. And so I think when, when we think of this as Christ's followers, we think, okay, let's clear the slate of what we've been taught, that, that this is not a bad thing. So what the Bible is not anti-alcohol. Here's the, the Bible is anti, it's anti-abuse, right? It's anti-losing control of our lives. It's, it's anti-giving any substance power over our life. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says. In fact, well, before we do that, let me say this. So you ask yourself the question, well, where does this teaching come from that's like anti-sex and anti-alcohol? Where does that come from? You know, a scary answer in the Bible is that it comes from the dark side. In fact, I want you to look at this. Look at your note sheet. This is from 1 Timothy chapter uh, 4. And let me say this before we look at this. I want to say the one thing, because I want to make this very clear, put neon lights around it. I don't want anyone going out of here and says, Pastor Mike said we need to stop at Trader Joe's on the way home. <laughs> the church that follows Jesus drinks together, you know. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to be misquoted here. So let's put neon lights around something. I think that there are very good reasons for some people not to drink. I think if you grew up in a family, there's a family history of alcoholism. You have a personal history of alcoholism, drug abuse. Absolutely. Maybe you have younger kids at your house and you just don't want to confuse them right now. There's times in my life I've said, hey, I felt God specifically called me not to, to have any alcohol for certain periods of time. Uh, so, so this very well may be, I am not saying, I, w- I want to be really clear on this. The whole, there's good reasons not to drink. The Holy Spirit may call you to do that. I'm just saying, let's not call it that this is something for everyone at all times. That's all I'm saying. And so look what Paul says here. He says the ver- in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, which is Paul's way of saying the end times, the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming, he says the Spirit clearly says, that some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, catch that, demonic spirits, things taught by demons. Well, like what? Well, they will forbid people to marry. Okay, that's more spiritual not to marry, not to have sex. That's what that's about, okay? Uh, and they'll order them to abstain from certain foods. No, you can't eat that, you can't drink that, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is what? Is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, right? And so, so here's the issue. The issue is not drinking, not drinking. The issue is abuse. And that becomes very clear in the next passage on your note sheet in Ephesians chapter 5. Same passage we looked at earlier in the day, but further on. Paul says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to what? Debauchery. Instead, be filled with the what? Spirit. So here's the guiding principle. The guiding principle is just don't get drunk on wine. Why? Because God doesn't want you drinking and he hates wine? No. He says don't get drunk on wine because it leads to debauchery. In other words, don't let anything substance in your life where you lose control of your ability to, to control your direction. And it can happen fast, can't it? 
And, and brothers and sisters, we need to be very careful on this. It can happen so quickly. You go out with a bunch of buddies from your work and you're, you're, you're off-site at a you know, business and you're out of town or whatever and business meetings and everyone's drinking and that's fine. And you, you say, but all of a sudden you have one too many and all of a sudden you find yourself doing something you never would do. Uh, you're a single adult and you're dating someone, you have too much to drink and all of a sudden bad things happen. And, and God's warning us here, hey, don't ever let any substance control your life. You need to be wise. You need to make sure that you're doing what God's will is in a situation. And if you let any substance alter your brain, you lose control over your body. And you can get yourself in a, in a, in a world of trouble. You know, a few years ago, I was teaching on this topic, and I had a... Uh, a lady on one of my leadership teams emailed me, and she said, uh, Pastor Mike, this series you were doing on successful dating has been priceless. I wish I'd known these things years ago. I'm looking forward to the lessons on sexual purity. One of the things I wish I, I clearly understood earlier is that alcohol and dating can cause disaster, can spell disaster. I don't know if I'm just a slow learner or if others would benefit from hearing you address this pitfall, but what I've learned is that two unhealthy people out on a date drinking alcohol can lead to date rape even among, quote, Christians. Because alcohol lowers one's inhibitions, I found myself in a heap of trouble one night after I went out with a guy and we both had drinks. He had boundary issues and impulse control issues. This combined with alcohol made for a disastrous evening. Since he was a guy I met from a Christian singles group, I was not prepared for this. I didn't realize how foolish it was to drink with him and put my guard down. He was the first guy I'd been out on a date with after I, uh, becoming single. I was naive and needy and didn't realize how fast things can escalate with single adults. If any good can come out of this situation by using anonymously as an illustration, you're welcome to do so if you think it would help anyone. Man, it's true, isn't it? It can happen fast. And so, so this is the message is that, hey, the darkness, you've got to leave it behind. And being under the influence is part of the darkness. Now, obviously, the, the obvious implication is, okay, as Christ's followers, we're not going to be out partying, getting drunk, getting high, getting stoned. I mean, that's the obvious. But here's the more subtle distinction that I think we, that many of us need to ask ourselves a tough question. Here's the tough question. Is there, is there any substance in your life that's causing it to be harder for you to follow Jesus and discern his will in your life. Because here's what I found is that you may not be getting out and getting drunk or getting higher anymore or whatever, but you know, for some of us here, it's probably we're the sort of person that, hey, we need that six-pack every night just to unwind. We need those three shots after dinner just to kind of mellow out from the day or to get through the day. And the reality is we don't see ourselves as having a problem, but we are compromised. We are living our life under the influence. And so if this is true of you, here's what I can predict about your life. The chances are you have someone in your life who's raising this issue. You have someone in your life who's concerned about your safety when you're driving. You've got someone in your life who's concerned about the amount of alcohol you're, you're taking in. You've got someone in your life who's concerned about you being addicted to prescription drugs. And if that's the case, here's the next bet I can make, is you're probably blowing them off. You're probably saying, I don't have a problem. Can I tell you something? If there's someone in your life that you're close to who thinks that you have a problem with substance abuse, chances are you have a problem with substance abuse. Because it's the nature of drugs or alcohol to blind us to our own issue. And it's so easy for us to be in de denial. So if you have a son or a daughter or a wife or a coworker and they're saying, man, I think you need to think that I think there's an issue I'll bet you dollars to donuts there is an issue. 
And, and you need to look at, we need to leave the darkness behind. Why? Because there's a new day coming. And God's got new plans for your life. And here's the issue. If you have a significant issue in your life with either of these issues, sexuality, pornography, prostitutes, sleeping around, you're with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, if you've got an issue there or if you've got an issue with substance abuse, if you've got either of those issues, here's what I can tell you, is that you cannot grow and follow Jesus until you deal with those issues. And often we want to lie to ourselves and say, I just won't deal with that issue, I'll just keep growing in these areas. And that is a lie. It's a lie from the evil one. Like trying to follow Jesus, when you've got major issues in these two areas, it's like trying to drive a car on a flat tire. You just cannot move forward. You've got to stop and get that flat fixed. You see? Now, the good news is, here at Rocky Peak, we've got a whole ministry to help you do this. We've got a ministry on Friday night. It's called Celebrate Recovery. And it's a great ministry, and it's designed to help people with all kinds of issues. You know, boundary issues, codependency issues, uh, eating disorders, all kinds of things. But two of the issues that it specifically helps is areas of sexual addictions or temptations and, uh, and then uh, uh, kind of substance abuse. And so if you have these, take advantage of We've got over 100 people that come, people that have been where you are, people who are being helped by Christ out of this. They're moving into the new day of their life. Take advantage Friday nights. I've also put some books there on your note sheet in both sections that I recommend on sexual issues or drinking issues. And then the drinking issue one's good for you, not only if you have the issue or if you live with someone who has an issue. Very helpful education there for you, okay? So Paul says, as Christ's followers, if you're serious about living transformed life, if you want to move in the future God has for you, if you're serious about living the life of love, then here's we've got to leave the darkness behind, the area of sexual immorality, the area of substance abuse, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together to talk about two important issues that just impinge on us at every turn in our culture. We pray today that you would help us grow in these areas. And if we are dealing with this, that we would have the courage to take this step to surrender this part of our life to you and get the help we need so we can move into the dawning of a new day that you have for us, the start of a whole new life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.